You're familiar with these lyrics. I'm not going to sing them, but I'm going to say them. Uh, Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. and No religion to. Imagine all the people living life in peace. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger. A brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Lyrics by John Lennon. This was his best-selling and probably his most well-known single, uh, solo of his solo career after his time with the Beatles. Rolling Stone ranked Imagine the number three song on its list of 500 all-time greatest songs. You may contest that, but that's former President Jimmy Carter said. He said in an interview in many countries around the world. My wife and I have visited about 125 countries. He said, in many of these countries, you hear John Lennon's song, Imagine, used almost equally with national anthems. Is that interesting? I mean, what is it that's, that's resonated so, so deeply and with so many people around the world with those lyrics? It's because, because almost all peoples, all cultures have, have some sort of utopian dream. A world of universal peace and harmony. This is this. You go anywhere in the world and you find this. And to be sure, excuse me. The reason that that dream is so desired, the reason we find that so common throughout the world, is because our world is so broken. There's such a lack of harmony. There's there's so much that's wrong because of the fall. People are actually quite divided along all kinds of lines. Geographic lines, uh, geography, gender, age, race, uh, wealth, politics, religion, theology, even in the church. And so to be sure, there have been many attempts uh, that, that, that have been made to usher in some kind of contrived unity and harmony and peace among a d- divided and diverse world. Some have tried it through force, you know, agree or else. This unity by uniformity and just, just force it. Others have tried it through coercion or deception. And this is why we have some, some of the politically, political ideologies and the false religions of our day. There's this attempt to kind of, whatever means necessary, to bring people together. There, there are others who have just kind of tried it in some sort of kumbaya uh, sort of unity and superficial unity. I think that's probably more what's behind a, a song like this. I mean, the bad news is there, there, will be no, there will be no earthly utopia this side of Christ's second coming. It's not going to happen. But the good news is, is God does provide for us uh, with, provide us with a true unity based on a common faith in Jesus Christ, a unity that's realized in His church through the person and work of the Holy Spirit. That's what we see. In this passage, what we saw, started to look at last week, and while this unity is obviously only very imperfectly realized now in this life, nevertheless, in Christ's church, God takes this whole host of different people and diverse people and makes them into one body. The church, that's the vision, the church of Jesus Christ, in which His 
Holy Spirit dwells. So this, the, the eternal spiritual reality is that the church is one in Christ. We've sang that, one church, one faith, one Lord. We've read that in Ephesians. We've read it again now in 1 Corinthians. Now the visible, earthly, day-to-day situation is that there is a lot of conflict and division and disharmony and fractions and factions in the church. And so this was certainly the case in the Corinthian church. And, it's, and, and this is what primarily why he wrote this letter. The problem of division and his antidote to division, it runs throughout the letter. This is not like one of the subjects that Paul kind of hits and then he moves on to something else. No, he, it, it, the division takes all kinds of different forms throughout in, in the church. And he's addressing this, this problem of division and this problem of division. But this is a common theme throughout this, this letter. It's just not a topic he moves on from. And so we tend to think of 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. We talked about this last week as, as sort of the, the passage on spiritual gifts, this extended section on gifts. And it is, but he's not writing a treatise on spiritual gifts. He's not saying, I hear got some questions about what they are and how long they last and all that and let me answer all those questions for you and give you this systematic theology on spiritual gifts that's not what he's doing here he's rewriting to address a very specific problem and the problem is is about division it's a divisions in the church over differing ideas about spirituality spiritual things in particular some of the Corinthian believers, they were, they were still being very much shaped by their culture's view of spirituality, that pagan culture. And it was shaping them more than the gospel was shaping their, uh, their understanding of spirituality. So they, became, they came to equate these kind of um, ecstatic and, and spectacular experiences and, and gifts, particularly tongues. They, they, they equated those things with, with spirituality, with true, this kind of super spirituality. That was very common in again, in the religion of their day. And so those who didn't have those experiences or didn't have those gifts, they were viewed as quite less than spiritually or unspiritual. So you had this rift. You had the church being divided between the spiritual haves and the spiritual have-nots. That's what's going on in Corinth. And so Paul's very concerned about this. So he writes this lengthy section to them, and he's basically saying, there are no spiritual elites in the church. That's not what you find. There are only justified sinners who are given gifts of the Spirit. That's, what, that's what's true of everyone. And so last week we saw this. Paul, Paul tells them that their, their little spiritual stratification, that, that system of ranking and, 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 cause, and putting the people into groups, that's horribly flawed. Their, their categories are, are faulty. And so what, what matters when it comes to spirituality and spiritual things it's the absence or the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so what he labored to do, as we saw first in this chapter, is he says the Spirit's present in all believers. And we know this because all believers have this common confession. Jesus is Lord. And nobody makes that confession apart from the work of the Spirit. So if you're a Christian and you confess that Christ is Lord, that's the evidence of the Spirit. You're a spiritual person in that sense. And he says, and he goes on, he says, we all have gifts that come from this common source. It's the triune God who's given gifts. And, and he's given these gifts for this common aim, to, for, the, for the good of the church. And he, and, he, and he goes on, we have this common shared experience. The Spirit empowers the different gifts that he gives us for use in the body of Christ. So we have all this in common. We have this evidence of the Spirit's presence in our life. We share that together. 
And so now he turns to that image, that, that metaphor, very powerful analogy that's, that, that, that we we're familiar with in, in this chapter of 1 Corinthians. And he turns to this to drive this troth, truth home for us and for them. So it's this metaphor of the human body. The human body with its all kinds of different limbs and organs and, and, and working together. And so this is a very familiar image to the Corinthians. It was used in, in political oratory at that time. Very common uh, in that day for this to be used. And so the Romans loved this. They loved using this analogy of the body to persuade those of lesser status uh, uh, to, to, to just kind of dutifully serve the elite. That was how this metaphor was, uh, was used in that day. All the time. It was employed to, to kind of keep subordinates in their place. The, the, those of you who are feet, you need to just understand that's your menial place. That's it. And so your job is to support the head. Support the higher ups. And so realize you're not that important, but you still need to do your job because they need to be fed. That's, that's kind of how the image was used in, in, in politics at that time in, in, in the Roman world. And so Paul takes that familiar image and, and totally reframes it in, in, in light of the gospel and, and, and just turns it on its head. And so instead of using it to highlight differences in status and to put people between the, the haves and the haves nots, he says, no, this is showing us this wonderful and beautiful unity and diversity in the church. That's what he's doing here. Every member of the body important and essential to the well-being of the whole church is many and one that's what that's what he's showing us with this image and i think that that's very clear as we see this so the corinthian church they desperately needed to understand and believe this and embrace this and live this out they you had some who were saying things like this and we'll see this as we walk through the passage some were saying well because i don't have those gifts namely tongues i don't really belong to the body i'm not that important uh, I mean, what place do I have here? Maybe I should go somewhere else. So you had that group, and then you had others who were saying, because I have these gifts, tongues, I don't need you. You're unimportant. Maybe you should go somewhere else. You don't belong here. So, so those competing attitudes, you could see why the church was just broken apart and fractured along these lines if this is the attitude. And so Paul takes both of those attitudes in this passage, and he, and he takes them on, through this metaphor. So that's what we'll see as we walk through. So we're going to we see this many and we see one. First thing we'll see, many parts, one unit. Many parts, one unit. We see this in verses 12 to 14. This is where Paul kind of lays out the, the basic principle, the basic truth here that he's going to unpack in the rest of the chapter here. We've been, uh, at, uh, with our kids, have had their high school musical this, this week over in Noonan. And so we've been back and forth all week long, and, and uh, there were, th I, I, I've seen the fiddler on the roof now three times in three days, um, and so, but it was really well done, really neat weekend. I love the musical anyway. It's just a great story and 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 funny and and powerful. But but I I've just I'm watching it that many times. I'm just I'm amazed at all of the different parts that go into. A production like that. This is just you know a small little high school musical, and 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 you have you know the lead actors, but you then you have the directors who are working behind the scenes. And Atlanta's nodding her head; she knows exactly what's involved in this. 
I'm the novice here, but you have the costume design folks and the set builders and the people that do the props and the people that are working backstage and the people doing lighting and sound and just all of these different parts that are working to make that happen. And so there's this, there's this diversity of roles and all these little bitty parts and yet it comes together and there's this unity of purpose putting on this, this show. And so all important but each part is necessary for the, for the good of the whole. And so one person, no matter how gifted they are, could perform the fiddler on the roof by themselves. It's not possible. And so it is in the church. It can, it's never to be a solo performance. It's not that, that's not how it's, how, it's, how it's intended to be. So throughout these verses, we'll note this, this oneness and manyness of the church. Look at verse 12. Just as the body is one and has many members... And all the members, manyness of the body, one, though many are one body. And he says, so it is with Christ. Let me just let that, let the end of verse 12 just kind of settle on you for a moment. Does that surprise you what he says there? And we expect him to say something like, all the members of the body, though many are one body, and so it is with the church. That's what we anticipate, because that's what the metaphor is all about. The, the body is the church, and yet he says, so it is with Christ. Why? Why does he say that? Because he's pointing to this, this deeper, more fundamental spiritual reality that's behind the image. When we become Christians, we don't simply join a club, an organization. We're like a country club at prayer or something like that. No, no. Rather, we, we were joined, we were united to Jesus Christ by this mysterious and powerful working of the Holy Spirit. Now, we saw that we've seen this elsewhere in this letter, 1 Corinthians 1.30. Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. You, plural, you, all of you are in Christ Jesus. All believers are in Christ, united to the crucified, risen, ascended Lord. And because we're connected and united to Christ, we're also united to every other Christian who's united to Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so there's this most profound, fundamental oneness in Christ that we share together, whether we see it or not, whether we feel it or not, whether we have warm fuzzies or not when we come into a gathering like this. This is reality. No matter how fractured, how divided the church may seem, the body of Christ worldwide, the, a local congregation, no matter how different and diverse we are, this is reality. It is as real and intimate and profound a union as the connection of organs and limbs and body parts is to the anatomy of the human body. That's what he's saying. Many parts, one unit in Christ. Which means for us to live in disharmony or for us to to promote or even just permit factionalism and, and division in the church. It's to live in complete contradiction to this fundamental spiritual reality about who we truly are in Christ together. We are one in Him. That's reality, to live with division in the church, to live at odds with who we are as Christian people. It contradicts our corporate spiritual identity. And so in verse 13, so this is, this is where he begins. And in verse 13, he tells us how it is that we became one in Christ and therefore one with one another. Verse 13, for in one spirit, here's the oneness, 
We were all baptized into one body. Many people, Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the one body, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. One, one body, many parts. And when we think of baptism, we typically think of water baptism, like what we did in the cattle trough over here in the corner before the building was condemned um, uh, several months ago. I'm joking, sort of. Um, but the supernatural reality to which water baptism uh, points is, is, is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When the Lord saves us, we trust in Christ, we're baptized in the Spirit, Scripture says. We're identified fully with Christ by the Spirit. I know there are, there are some strands of Christian teaching out there that, 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 that say that the baptism of the Spirit of some kind of second work of grace in the life of, of a Christian. And so, that, so there are some who are just Christians, and then there are others who are Christians but who've been baptized in the Spirit. So you have kind of these two different groups of, of believers. That's the very opposite of what Paul's saying here, though. He, that, that's, to, that's to turn the meaning of this verse and the whole passage on its head. Paul's stressing the word all. All. This is something every Christian shares. All of us into one by the Spirit. That's so important to understand. Again, to be a Christian is to be intimately, profoundly, supernaturally connected to Christ Himself by the Holy Spirit. Every single Christian, regardless of ethnicity or class or IQ or social status, whatever, we are one in Him by the Spirit. From the, just think of, think of the diversity in the world. You have this Christian teenager in southern Indonesia. You have this, this middle-aged woman in the depths of Hong Kong's inner city. You have you have the uh, dear elderly saint in some African, remote African village. And then you have you and me sitting here. We could go back generations, go back 2,000 years, and through all of those different places and all of those different times, we, we are one. All believers are members of the same body because we've all been baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ so that we confess that Jesus is Lord. That's incredible. So Paul starts with this big overarching truth here. That this is, this is the fundamental spiritual reality of our oneness in spite of our manyness. Those are not in contradiction. So now he's going to apply that principle in different ways to us. In particular, he's going to address some attitudes that were kind of rearing their ugly heads in the Corinthian church and often do in our own church and are in churches today. Attitudes that often... Uh, inhibit uh, our ability to live together in the unity of the Spirit and the body of Christ. And so, particularly wrong attitudes in terms of how we think about ourselves and how we think about others. And so, first thing we say, many parts, one unit. Second, verses 14 to 20, many parts, each is important. Many parts, each important. So he first applies this principle, maybe you picked up on this, this body metaphor to, to those who may feel kind of inferior in the church. Those in the Corinthian church who were thinking, I don't have the spe spectacular gifts like they have. I, I, it's, not, it's not there. I, I don't have it. And 
those super spiritual ones, they seem to be on this other plane. That's not me. Do I really belong here? Am I really needed then? Is there a place for me here? So Paul aims to encourage those who feel that their giftedness or even maybe their spirituality doesn't measure up to those of have more visible, more, more um, uh, kind of impressive manifestations of the Spirit in the church. And so he does so by, by using some imagination and some humor here. I appreciate the way Eric read this because it helped to kind of draw this out and highlight this. And this body metaphor. So he takes these body parts and he, and he imagines them talking. So questioning, complaining here about their significance or their place within the church. And so verse 15, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. That would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. I know it sounds absurd, doesn't it? This is his point. I'm, not, I'm, not a, I'm only a foot. I'm not a hand. Maybe I don't really belong to the body at all. It's crazy. Now, in our context, maybe it's something like, I, I'm just a church member. I'm not a ministry leader. I, I'm, I'm just an elderly shut-in watching on live stream here. I'm not a missionary. I'm a stay-at-home mom. I got very little margin in my life right now. I'm not a you know, Sunday school teacher or something like that. So, so we, we can think like that, and so we can start to think, maybe I don't have anything to contribute to the life of the church. I'm just a, just a foot, just an ear. Maybe I, maybe I don't really belong. And so Paul says here with this analogy, that's absolutely absurd. It's absurd. And he plays out the absurdity a little more in verse 17. Look at verse 17. He says, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? That's a kind of a humorous and bizarre image, isn't it? It's, it's a little bit freakish, really, if you just kind of think like I'm envisioning this, what this would look like. But instead of a body with many parts working together, you just have this giant ear. You, 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 no sense of smell, no, no sight, no, no taste, no movement, no sound, no vocals or anything like that. Maybe it can hear great, that's it. It had no, no real use without other body parts. The body only functions properly when all the parts work together in harmony with one another. That's, that's, we, get the, we get the image. So what he's saying is when, when we kind of poor mouth ourselves and we think of ourselves as inferior in this way and, we, and this, this false sense of inferiority in the church, we miss the beauty and the goodness of God's design in the church. So he says in verse 18, but as it is, this is reality, God, look at that, God arranged the members in the body, each and every one of them, as He chose. God has done this. And so if all were a single member, where would the body be? Listen, your place, my place, our place in the, in the body of Christ, it isn't a matter of personal preference. It's not self-made striving. It's not about social status. It's not about spiritual ladder climbing. No, it is all of God's sovereign and wise and merciful choosing. He's His arranging. He has chosen. This is, this is why the kind of dejection and dissatisfaction, I know, brothers and sisters, we sometimes feel that. We, we look horizontal, we look around each other, and we compare ourselves in gifting and abilities and ministries and opportunities. And This pastor is tempted to do that all the time. We do that, but it's so wrong-headed. 
ultimately. Because it's God who determines the nature and the range of a person's gifts. And it's God who deploys them for his use in the local church. God is sovereign in this whole matter of giftedness and roles in the body. And so comparisons like that are deadly in the Christian life. They're deadly in the church. Our calling is simply to use what God has given us in humility for the glory of His name and for, as we saw last week, the common good of the body. It's to use our unique gifts and our unique circumstances with the Spirit's power that He provides for the praise of His name. And so maybe you're not an upfront kind of person. You don't do well speaking in public. You can pray. You can pray. Maybe you can't lead a small group, but you can, you can be here early. You can welcome new faces. You can greet people. You can show kindness and generosity to people who are hurting around you. Maybe you'll, you'll never be invited to lead a missions team or something like that, but you can tell your friends and neighbors. You can talk to them about Christ. You'll never perhaps be an elder, but you can practice hospitality. Open your home. Show love to, to brothers and sisters in Christ and strangers. I mean, there's this, there's this wonderful, beauty, beautiful diversity in the body of Christ as God has or, organized and arranged it and ordained it. And, 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 and we're not to exclude ourselves because we don't think we have the gifts that we see in others. That's what he's addressing first. And you notice he, he brackets this whole paragraph in verse 14 and verse 20. The, basically the same idea. For Verse 14, for the body does not get, consist of one member but of many. Saying we need each other. And in verse 20, as it is, there are many parts yet one body. We need each other. In all of our differences and diversities, if you are in Christ by faith, because of the work of Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit uh, uniting you to Jesus, you are an important member of the church. You are, you are necessary. You're necessary. He's going to make that very clear in the next section from a different angle. So many parts, one unit, many parts, all important. Third, many parts, all interdependent. We're all, we're all connected in this way. Verse 21 to 24. And so notice in verse 24, 21, he's sticking with the same body metaphor, but he begins to address a different wrong attitude in the church. So he's been speaking about those who think of, who, who, who uh, been speaking about how we think about our, ourselves, engaging in comparisons with one another, but, but that feeling of inferiority. Now he's going to flip it around and he's going to speak about how we're tempted to think of others, also engaging in comparisons, but then feeling sup, a sense of superiority as we look at others. So he goes from offering words of encouragement to those who are thinking of themselves, I'm not needed. To offering words of caution or really rebuke to those who thought about others, you're really not needed. So he says to them, you, you, have, you may have special gifts, but don't think you are the be-all and end-all of, of what the body needs. So you see it in verse 21. Same image, same body parts talking here, but now he flips it around. He says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be, you know, weaker are, notice the word here, indispensable. Indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. 
And on our unpresentable parts, we are treated with greater modesty, which our, which our more presentable parts do not require. Now, what a powerful word to a church that's just being so shaped by that kind of spiritual stratification there in Corinth. What a, what a needed word for us, brothers and sisters. We, 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 we who are also shaped by this kind of social, social stratification in our own culture. And so Paul, notice Paul doesn't speak here of these folks with, you know, quote, weaker gifts as merely being an addition to the body or even a, a welcome addition to the body. Now what does he say? He says these members are indispensable to the body. The body cannot do without them. That's the idea of indispensability. It can't, it can't function without them. No member of the body can say to any other member and say, I don't need you. How many times does that thought dwell well, well up in us, though? We could do without them. I could do without them. The Lord says, no, 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 no. No, no, nobody's dispensable. Look again what he says in verse 23. In the body, he says, some parts are covered up. You know, we, we thankfully, you can be glad. I covered up my feet this morning, uh, and we're not preaching barefoot. Uh, you don't want to see these bare feet. They're not pretty, so pray for Brooke. But we, we dress up our feet with shoes. We, we cover our in, unpresentable parts to be modest. But our presentable parts, they don't get that kind of special treatment, do they? We're not, we're not, we don't need to give that kind of attention to our eye or to our hand. No, no, but we do that with other parts. So Paul's point, I think, is this. is those gifted, those, those more public, those more visible ministries... And this is going to become really clear in chapter 14. They're, they're not the ones that need to be shown special care, special attention. It's the so-called unpresentable parts. That's how they thought of themselves. These weaker, I think that's what he's by saying here. And yet Paul says they're vital. They're indispensable. They're to be treated with greater honor. I know in our own context and culture, we, we privilege the kind of the... The, the upfront, the big, uh, big personality, the, that kind of stuff. And we need, we need all, we need that. There's nothing wrong with that. But in the church, we need to give special care and honor to those brothers and sisters who minister in often unseen ways. I don't mean drag them up on the stage. That, that's the last thing they want. But I mean <laughs> to see their value, to be grateful for them, to, to, to pray for them, to, to encourage them. Not to, not to divide up with them, but draw into them. Fold them in. The shut-in who can't make it to church anymore, but prays fervently for us. Is praying right now for this gathering. We have brothers and sisters who would love to be here, but they're not. And they're praying for us right now. Interceding on our behalf. They're the, the family of modest means, yet who they, they open their home to other people in Jesus' name. They welcome people around their table and they share what they can. The, the quiet encouragers, the, just the servant-hearted doers who are working behind the scenes, the generous givers, the faithful helpers, the, 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 the gentle and loving disciple-makers. I mean, these, these, are, these are the folks, as Paul puts it, we are to show greater honor to those that, that lack it. I mean, that's, a, that's the gospel pattern, isn't it? This is Christ. I mean, Christ Himself came not as His mighty conquering hero, what did he do? He came as a carpenter's boy who became a wandering rabbi who was rejected by most, was crucified by the Romans. It's his upside down, back to front, 
counterintuitive pattern of the gospel. It's the pattern of Paul's ministry. It's not as the elite Pharisee, as the best educated one, who, the, the, the one with the privileged status that, that he planted all of those churches throughout the Roman Empire. No, counting all of those things as rubbish for the sake of Christ. It was often as a rejected, beaten, imprisoned, self-supported, itinerant preacher that he, he was used for the progress of the gospel. It may seem to us that the, that the, the one up front... The one with all the visible, you know, more impressive gifts. That's, that's the most important. That's the one who really makes the difference. But the gospel pattern is different. It's very different. It's often the hidden parts of the body that are worthy of greater honor. That are indispensable, without which the body can't function at all or can function well for the glory of God. Now, isn't it interesting? So we, we see both of those errors, those that are feeling inferior and encourages them to say, no, you have, you have a vital... And those that are feeling superior and say, ah, we don't need you. No, you need them. They're indispensable. It's the, it's the, it's the same antidote for, for both errors. It's the same application, same medicine. But he's not done yet. So many parts, one unit. Many parts, all important. Many parts, all interdependent. And fourth... Many parts, none exclusive. This is the natural overflow of everything we said up to this point. He just kind of keeps circling back, and, and it's drilling a little deeper with each little round here. Verse 24, look at it again. Again, he points to the prerogatives of a sovereign God who orders the body as he wills. So verse 24, the end of verse 24, he says, But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. Now, why does he do that? For what purpose? That, here's the purpose, there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. So many diverse parts of the body, but, but no division. Not a, it's not just a loose collection of body parts. It's not what it is. That's not the church. That's not a body. A body is not a pile of limbs and organs. A body is parts that are connected. They're working together. Not exclusive of one another. Not in the same room, but not really connected. No. Here's how it's expressed in the church. Verse 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And we understand this in a physical way, don't we? Um, if part, one part of the body is in pain, we feel it through our whole body. If you've ever slammed your hand in a door or something like that. I remember... One particular instance of that, there had been multiple, but as, as a child, probably first or second grade, and we were about to head to the swimming pool, and I was so excited, and it was just my mom and dad and, and myself, and I was climbing in the back seat, and, you, and I got my hand stuck on that, that, uh, the, the hinge side of the door, not the other side of the door, and oh, it hurt so bad, and, and we didn't get to go to the pool and all that, so that was what I was really... But, but as soon as that door slammed on my fingers, there was information that flew up my fingers, through my hand, up my arm, through my shoulder, to my brain. And, 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 and then I yelled. My throat, my tongue, my lungs, all that was, was involved, my vocal cords. Then my, then my hand and my arm were involved, and I pulled my hand out of the door, and my, and my mom heard me scream, so she opened the door and so I could get it out. Then I, then I looked... I used my eyes. I didn't like what I saw, but I looked. <laughs> and, and then my left hand reached for my right hand to hold it. 
And then, and then, and then I cried. Yes, I cried. I'm sorry. There were, there were tear ducts that were involved. And then I ran into the house. I used my legs. I mean, you see, the, it's this whole body reaction when one part of the body is injured. I mean, we know that in a physical way. And this is what he's saying. When one member suffers, all suffer together. So it is in the church. And conversely, when one part is honored, the whole body rejoices together. I mean, if someone says, you have beautiful eyes, or you have a dazzling smile, or I love your hair, I get that compliment all the time. When they say that, there, there, there is, there is this, our body language reflects the pleasure we feel as we bask in the glow of that compliment. We, we, we appreciate that to completely. We react. When one member is honored, the whole body responds. We don't say to, to a victorious runner, I congratulate your legs. No, congratulations, they go to the person. Success, in that sense, it results from the, the coordination of the limbs and the body and the organs, everything working together. It's the person. And that's how it's to be in the church. No part is exclusive from the others. When one member suffers, we all grieve. We suffer together. When mom, one member is honored, we don't look at them with jealousy or envy. We, we, we rejoice in the blessing that they've received and we receive with them. As they're honored. And that, that's a profoundly countercultural way of thinking, isn't it? I mean, it's, oh, oh yeah, it makes sense. I get the image, but that's hard to, to live that out, to demonstrate that. But it goes on, verse 27. This is another kind of summary statement here. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And then he gives some specific application real quick to the Corinthian church and shows to just to show again no parts exclusive from the others and God has appointed in the church first apostles second prophets third teachers then miracles then gifts of healing helping administrating various kinds of tongues it's going to become very clear in chapter 14 that that some in the Corinthian church had this very inflated view of tongues in particular we'll talk a, a, about that when we get there but th this was in their estimation. It, this was like a, another category of gifts. Uh, higher, better than others. And so they had, the, they had made this basically kind of this one solitary piece of evidence of the, of the Spirit's uh, work in their life and His fullness in them, of spirituality. So Paul's pushing back a little bit on this here. He's poking them a little bit. So he lists some of the gifts and some of the offices now, I don't, this is not a comprehensive list. This is a representative list. And, 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 he, and in a way, he does it that indicates a priority of sorts. Now, we have to be careful here. Because given everything we've seen already in this chapter, we, we don't want to say more than Paul says here in terms of you know, greater, less than gifts. That would kind of counter everything we've been saying. But, so he's saying no single gift is all important. No gift is unimportant. All are interdependent. None is exclusive. But that's not to say they're all the same. We'll come back to that in a, in a minute, maybe. Okay, we'll try. We'll get to it later if not. But in, in verse 29, look, he asks some rhetorical questions. So the Greek form of these questions, it anticipates a negative answer every time. I think we can understand that. And it's more obvious in the Greek. But it basically be like, they're not all, we're not all apostles, are we? Of course not. Are all prophets? No way. Are all teachers? No do all work miracles? Uh-uh. Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? Of course not. That's the only right answer uh, for Paul here with each of these questions. 
many, many parts. None is exclusive. That's his point. And then last, and we'll just lead into next week, many parts, some greater. Some greater. Just look at the, the one exhortation that comes in verse 31. Earnestly desire. It speaks of this continuous, habitual action. Earnestly desire the higher, the greater gifts. Now, it's not contradicting everything, again, he said up to this point. And we have to see it in light of, of what's coming in particular. That, 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 that um, he, he, it's not possible to say that, that, that they're putting some kind of ranking as if you've got these, you're a better person or something like that. Because what he's going to really... But, but, he, but he's also saying, you put different gifts on the scale, they don't all weigh in the same. All ministries. And he'll talk about, you know, kind of, uh, he gives more degrees of gifting and all those kinds of things. So it's not equality. That's not the point. But he's saying all are critical. All are indispensable. All are important. And it's his desire of those greater gifts. And again, we get to chapter 14, we'll see. But there are those gifts that build up the whole body as opposed to those gifts that, that build up only a small part of the body. Particularly, he'll say tongues. Before he gets to that, he says there's something more important that you need to consider, and it's the primacy of love. So he says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. And then we get to chapter 13. Yes, you should desire the higher gifts, but there is something far more important than seeking gifts, and it's love. It's love. So what is Paul doing here? He's calling us to be who we really are. That's essentially it. He's calling us to live out the unity that's been forged by the Holy Spirit in Christ, the head of the body. And so and that, of course, is, is where things get challenging for us, isn't it? It's not easy to live out our unity. Uh, I mean, we're, we're like newlyweds. Newlyweds after the honeymoon period. We've got some future newlyweds in this church right now. Uh, we've got some weddings coming up this year, one in particular that I'm very aware of. Um, but you get newlyweds that they're united in law, and they may be united in love, and they love one another. But learning to live out unity in a marriage, that's difficult. It takes time. It takes effort. It, it takes hard work. It's not easy. It's not natural. So if you've been married for any length of time, you understand this. And so, and so it is in the church. This is where the Corinthians were at. They're struggling to, they're kind of the, the newlyweds, and they're like, how do we live this out? This reality. Maybe you're struggling like they were. Maybe you're struggling with some deep sense of insecurity. A sense of being, not being valued, wondering where your place might be in the church, feeling like your gifts are inferior, your ministry is inferior. No. It's indispensable. You're, you're, you're necessary. You're, you're needed. You have a place. And if you're, if you're kind of, don't suffer in silence as thinking thoughts like that. Talk with us. Share with us. Pour out your heart to us. And, and we would love to, to, to pray with you and help you and see how those gifts can be used in wonderful ways in the, in the, in the context of this congregation and in the body of Christ. And so, no, but maybe others are thinking in pride. I don't, I don't need you. I have something to offer and if you don't want it tough, but this is, you know, you need me. I don't need you. That's not a gospel pattern. That's, a, that's an attitude that you need to repent. You need to acknowledge that, no, that every member of the body needs every other member. An eye is not an adequate body. 
hand or nose or ear alone. It's not enough. You're, you are not enough. Your gift is not enough. You need brothers and sisters around you. So, so wherever we fall on that spectrum or any other ways, we, we come back to this fact that we are, in fact, one in a common Savior. And this is what he's saying. So I come back to where I began. Unity, it's not something that we create by our activity. I don't want you to hear that. True unity is something that's already been won for us by Christ. And so in other words, the church isn't just an organization that's built upon the commitment of the people that are in it. That's, you go to any social club, you go to any, any other group out here in the community, and that's fine to be part of those, but it's basically dependent upon the community or the, the, the effort and the commitment of those that are part of that group, if it's going to make it or not. That's not the church. The church is an organism created through the work of Christ on our behalf, namely through his death and resurrection. And so in all of our efforts to live at peace with one another, if they don't grow out a sense of, or excuse me, they don't grow out of a sense of, we need to create something that's not there. Or we need to maintain something that we might lose. That's not what drives us. No, what drives us is because of what Christ has done. We're free now to love one another and to pursue peace with one another and to forgive one another and, and to prefer one another and to, to work, move towards one another across all kinds of lines of division in the culture. Why? Because we are already one in Christ. It's already been secured. That's, that's true spiritual reality. So we're, we're simply called to live out who we already are together in Jesus. And I say simply like it's easy, but, uh, but this, is, this is where we start. This has got to be what drives us. In Christ, by the Holy Spirit, there's true unity. And listen, one day when the Lord return, after the Lord returns, we're going to see it when, there, when there's no hint or trace of sin anymore. Oh, what a day. But, but we will be together perfectly as the glorious bride. It's got to be glorious. But our hope for unity now in the church. It's not, it's not rooted in our efforts and our policies and our constitution or bylaws or church covenant or if we could just say the right thing or just preach the right sermon or do any of those things. It's rooted in the fact that we've been purchased together by the shed blood of Christ. Each one of us is clothed in the perfect righteousness of another, of Christ. We're justified by faith alone. Each one of us is made part of Christ's body by the Spirit's work of baptism. Each one of us has been given gifts that enable us to work together to build up one another in love. Each of us, therefore, is indispensable to the whole. There are no spare parts. May the Lord indeed help us to, to love, love the church, serve Him for His glory.